Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Welcome to Off the Page, a weekly podcast produced by the Comox Valley Record. I'm Erin Halschuk, a journalist with The Record. Join me as we take a deeper look into the people and stories within the Comox Valley. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Cindy Blackstock, who has dedicated her working life towards building better protections for Indigenous children and their families through compensation for past discrimination. She will be honoured at an upcoming Campanello dinner at the Sid Williams Theatre in Courtney on October 12th. Welcome to the podcast, Cindy. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start back at the beginning. I understand that you're originally from British Columbia, from Burns Lake. Can you tell me a little bit about your background growing up? I understand you have a really storied post-secondary career as well. I grew up, I was born in Burns Lake, BC, Mm -hmm. but I never actually lived there. My father was with the Forest Service, so we would move around in the bush to forest ranger stations, etc. In fact, I think we moved 15 times before I was 16 years old. And... uh, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s because I was born in 1964. And what I saw around me was, I didn't have words for it back then, but it turned out to be racism. This idea that First Nations folks were going to grow up to be drunks or to be on welfare. Those words were all around me in the parlance and were so disconnected from the future that I saw for myself. The other thing that was happening there was in northern BC, on a good day, we got CBC. (laughs) And we got the news, and I remember as a little kid watching the civil rights movement on TV, and I saw the horrors of the Ku Klux Klan burning crosses on the front lawns. And as a five-year-old, I didn't know what they were doing, and they looked like ghosts to me. And so I go and ask people, like, Because when people are mean, it's like you've done something wrong. So I'd say, what did these people do wrong? There were these crosses are being burned on their things. like, And people were saying they didn't do anything wrong. And yet these are the same people who would say things like drunk Indian, etc. That whole disconnect between good people at one hand standing on civil rights and at the other hand actually embedding this discrimination and limiting who I could become and who other kids could become really just captured my imagination and my soul throughout the rest of my life. And I would come to understand better that residential schools were still operating. My first job was I was at four years old. I'd pick pine cones for reforestation. And as I was hunting for pine cones, I had no idea that Indian agents were out hunting for kids like me. Did you ever see them or come across them or anything like that? Not that I know of. I think it was good that I was in the bush and we moved around so much. And also we had a dog that was part wolf. So that was also a good insurance policy. But that whole idea, the idea of there being somehow you're in danger because of who you are as a child and who your family is, that was a buzz throughout my entire childhood, for sure. You mentioned those racist comments being hurled all around. Do you remember them being directed specifically at yourself? 
Yeah, they'd call it. Other kids would repeat what their parents had said, like you're a dirty Indian and all the rest of it. And we would play, quote, cowboys and Indians because that was the game. And everybody wanted to, including me, wanted to be a cowboy because you lived longer in that game. It was all around us. And everything that you did from opening up books and you'd only see white kids with a nice dog. And then from what you would see on television, the really stereotypical and aggressive portrayal of then mostly Native Americans. And in also it was reinforced by the fact that you had generations that had been so hurt by residential schools and had no support and had a lot of judgment from the rest of Canadians about what they were doing. And so there were people with addictions issues around you. And so it is a toxic cocktail for the internalization of this systemic discrimination, not only on behalf of First Nations, Métis and Inuit kids at that time, but the Canadian public was subject to this as well. From your childhood growing up and what you experienced, how did you make the decision to go into social work? And I know you've got a two master's degrees and a PhD. What led you to that decision? I remember being five years old and getting these messages that you're never going to amount to anyone. And I remember one of my distant cousins came by and went to this place where you could go study whatever you wanted to be. And I didn't know much about it, but I knew it was called UBC. And I was thinking how many bags of pine cones would I have to collect in order to go to this place? I, from that moment, I was determined to get to that place. There was no other university I was going to. And I was going to prove everyone wrong, that I wasn't going to grow up to be a drunk Indian, that I could do more with my life than that. And so I ended up in post-secondary, and honestly, I had zero plans of doing what I'm doing for a couple of reasons. One is I'm scared stiff of public speaking. <laughs> and second, back then, I thought the arts were for people who couldn't succeed in the sciences, because I was doing a lot of science. But as part of my summer work, I had to earn money, because I just had to where I worked three jobs during university to try and pay my way through. And one of those jobs was a group home. And what I saw were all these young people, First Nations young people, being removed from their families and placed in these group homes. And I thought, this isn't a better life. I don't know where you came from, but this way you're growing up right now doesn't seem to be a better life, an improvement. And when I probed a bit more, it turned out that these kids came from communities where there was no water, where there was overcrowded housing, where there wasn't support for sewer mental health. And that led me to then, when I finally graduated from UBC, to taking a job as a child protection worker in, in Northern BC and in Vancouver. And I stayed in that position for 15 years. I worked on the line. And I just saw it so clearly. There were absolutely things that we need to hold parents' feet to the fire to change, no doubt. But what we we're seeing in child welfare was the codification of the structural discrimination as a parental deficit. People's feet were being held to the fire for discrimination by the Canadian government, and at that time, the government of British Columbia as well. And that struck me as being very unfair. When you crossed those really huge challenges, especially in that first job coming out of university and seeing what you saw, what was it about it that wanted you to push harder? Because I'm sure for a lot of people in those situations, they would probably internalize it or even find a different career path because I'm sure the frustrations of trying to change something that is so 
built into the system would be incredibly frustrating. I think, first of all, the magnificence of these kids. And in many ways, they had bigger dreams for themselves, too. And I just thought, why can't this happen for them? This is so, so dumb that this is still going on. And then I have to be honest, like I was doing this and I was convinced someone needed to deal with these inequalities in federally funded public services. Like someone had to do it. And I was also convinced I wasn't the right person to do it. Mm-hmm because I was scared of public speaking. I didn't want to be in any leadership positions. My plan was, I'm going to do what I can with the families I'm working with, and somebody else will come by and do this. And eventually, I realized that that's what everybody else was doing too, and that I needed to get over that if I was really going to do something about this. And that's the crazy thing about these things is you step across there, and it's a deep breath, and then it's, oh my God, what have I done? And then you realize that you were never alone in the first place. There were always people throughout history and today that are struggling to make things better. And your job is to join that community and to really do the best you can to honor these kids and their families. And so that has helped through is I like, I don't know a lot about a lot of stuff, but I know people who do know those things and working with them and working with the communities and the children and the families, that has been the recipe for success. And that's also guided my academic career. I've never been really in, into getting a degree to get a career. I actually get go to these different degrees in my postgraduate work because I wanted to learn more so that I could do a better job for the kids. When you face those moments where you felt like you were alone in the journey and you were up against you know, various levels of government, how did you push through that? It doesn't happen just once mm-hmm. is the news, is it happens on a regular basis. And I think that you have to welcome that as a gift because it's really important if you're doing work you have the privilege of doing work with people. You don't work for people, you do it with people. That if you have that privilege, your primary obligation is to do right versus be right. And that means you have to hold yourself accountable to what actually will solve the problem. And you have to conduct yourself in a manner that is dignified and loving. Even in the face of all kinds of stuff that's gonna be coming your way, you cannot waver on that. I always thought, I don't know where this is going, but I love these kids enough to fight for them and to do so in a way that brings them dignity. I'm not going to be up there yelling and screaming and doing all this kind of stuff because I, I wouldn't want anyone representing me doing that, acting in that way. I got to try every day to act with the dignity that many of these families are showing us this is the way that they want to raise their kids to be. So that's what I try to do. And you gotta stick to your values and you gotta stick to the truth. As some wonderful civil rights activists, I was privileged a few years ago to go down and meet with members of Martin Luther King's family and some of the activists around him at that time. And they said, you have to be prepared to stand in the winds of discrimination. And that's something I am continuing to try and practice. And sometimes it feels like you're alone. And sometimes you'll see a lot of people hiding under their desks and putting you out there as a target. And all of that is true. But you have to realize that all the privilege you have right now is because someone else stood up for you. And you may not even know who that is to be able to thank them, but that's my gift for the future generations who will never remember who I am and who I never expect to remember me. And for those who might not be familiar with it, can you explain Jordan's principle and how 
that came about. I have the privilege of actually working with Jordan's circle of care when Jordan was still alive. Jordan was born in Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba in 1999. And he had some medical issues. So for the first two years of his life, he had to spend at hospital. His mom would spend most of the time in Winnipeg with him while dad looked after the other kids in Norway House. This is a scene familiar to many parents who have got children in medical fragile communities. The good news for Jordan is that the doctor said he could go to a family home at the age of two. And if he was a non-Indigenous kid, that's exactly what would have happened. But because he was First Nations and the federal government funds public services for First Nations on reserve, and he lived on reserve, then they started arguing Manitoba and Canada over who should pay for his at-home care because he still needed supports and to, for his medical condition at home. They argued over every single item and they left that child in the hospital. His pediatrician, medical team members, his family, Norway House Cree Nation, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs were all saying, let this little boy go home and then figure out the payment stuff later, Canada and Manitoba. But they didn't do it. And then he spends two and a half years there unnecessarily in that hospital before his sister, Jerlene Anderson, said he dies of a broken heart. He never left the hospital because he's a First Nations child. This is in 2005. And we knew that this was happening to First Nations kids across the country. They were being denied or delayed or getting inferior education, health services because of this nonsense. So the family came together and Jordan's principle was created and it means First Nations kids can access public services when they need them. It's kind of like for everybody else, but they also take account of the residential schools, the bigger burden that these kids have placed. So it's very simple, pass through House of Commons, and then Canada didn't implement it. And so we've had now a legal order arising from 15 years of litigation, plus 22 non-compliance orders against Canada and procedural orders since 2016. The litigation is continuing, but thanks to Jordan and his family, there's now been over a million and a million services provided to kids that they otherwise would have been denied. It's been life-changing for those families. Like before, for example, I'll tell you how crazy this was. Canada would actually cap the number of feeding tubes kids could have, First Nations kids could have. So if you ran out as a parent, you'd either have to rewash these feeding tubes and risk infecting your child or not feed your child. Those were the options First Nations families had to make. And this was not like way off in the boonies. This was just recently. And then if you had a child with a disability and you were a low income parent, and you needed a lift, a stroller, and a wheelchair. The government's own documents say this. If you were off-reserve and non-Indigenous, you'd get all three of those items when doctors and proper health professionals said they were needed. If you're on reserve, you only get one of those pieces of equipment every five years of that child's life. And if you have to self-install the track that's the lift for the child. You don't get a professional in to do that. You're gonna be up there with a screwdriver hoping for the best. This is the type of treatment that the Canadian government was. It was really apartheid public services is really what was at center of this. And even after we had that legal order in 2016, Canada still refused to implement Jordan's principle in a good way. And the deaths of three children have been linked to Canada's non-compliance. That's in 2018. We still are seeing cases that should be obviously approved that are being denied, including in British Columbia. So this is not done yet. It's better, but I'm actually not after half measures. I actually think First Nations kids deserve equity across all public servants. We should not normalize the fact that some First Nations kids aren't getting clean water, for example. There's no excuse for that. 
The space station, population six, has clean water and broadband access. So why do so many First Nations not have clean water and why do only 35% of First Nations homes have broadband access? As a public, we all need to demand that our politicians step up to the plate because the solutions are there, they just need to implement them. And just to wrap up here, looking back on your career there, have any of the challenges that you've seen First Nations youth in particular, have they changed a lot throughout your career and what you're seeing? Number one, I just think it's so amazing to see so many First Nations maintained in youth who are proud of who they are. And we need to do a shout out to all of the communities and families who, despite all these horrible hardships, have managed to come through it and, and to the survivors. They told their truth so their grandkids wouldn't have to go through it. I think it's amazing, the loving, caring families, and also the care that First Nations folks, and I saw this with the unmarked race, the care of First Nations, Métis and Inuit folks gave the non-Indigenous community when those grays came. It wasn't news to us, and uh, it was news to everybody else, and they were breaking down in tears, as they should. But the survivors had told their truths decades before. We all knew this existed. And so we were the ones taking care of everybody else in many cases. So I see that. I also see non-Indigenous kids who have grown up knowing about residential schools and can see the injustices so much more clearly and really want to get engaged in making sure the future of Canada is not one marked by these, quote, dark chapters, but that it's a real possibility of living, having all of your rights recognized. So all of this, I think, is very positive and a big change. And of course, seeing the government finally being held accountable for what it's doing to First Nations kids in real time, that we never saw before. It was all, oh, this happened in the past and we'll do a class action to deal with the past harms. But this is on our watch. Thank you so much, Cindy. I really appreciate your time and your insight and really look forward to seeing you in person in about a month's time. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It'll be an honor to be there again. That's this edition of Off the Page, produced by the Comox Valley Record. Thank you for joining us. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, we would like to hear from you. Email us at offthepage at comoxvalleyrecord.com. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today.